I'm Jamie Hurst, and for the MSU Denver Alumni Association, we're excited to bring you Bird Talk, a podcast about our alumni, their careers, and their lives. I feel like they missed an opportunity by not calling you the master Toastmaster, you know, instead of president, I think. You're right. You should bring that in and say, hey, I have this idea. (laughs) And I'm also happy to send you the link to our Toastmasters Club if you ever want to join. I may need to. We're excited to welcome Rebecca Totman, 2005 alum, to this episode of Bird Talk. Um, I'm Jamie Hurst, our host. You earned a degree in art while you were here, and uh, we're excited to hear a lot about how that degree has kind of manifested into a pretty incredible career. And so before we do that, I do want to give our listeners just a little bit of a background on you so they can know what we'll be chatting about. But Rebecca is an accomplished producer specializing in adult and children's animation and mixed media scripted series with over 15 years of experience in television and animation on Emmy and Peabody award-winning content. She's currently a co-producer with the Jim Henson Company. She's also dedicated to the study of leadership and personal development and is currently the club president of the Las Vegas Storytellers Toastmasters Club. Rebecca has also produced and curated seven group art shows and her group Love Hate Los Angeles and created her first large-scale sculpture, Joy Cat, in 2019, which was featured at Burning Man. So, man, a whole lot of things. (laughs) When do you sleep? So many things. (laughs) I still manage somehow. (laughs) Somehow. And you're joining us from Los Angeles today? I am from, uh, I'd like to say, sunny Burbank, California, but unfortunately, it's been a little gloomy here in Los Angeles lately. (laughs) I believe it. I I grew up right outside of Burbank in La Cañada, so little town right between Glendale and Pasadena and so spent um, my first 20 some odd years in that space and I don't miss the gloominess compared to Denver but there's obviously an ocean that I miss Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but love that you're there and and getting to join us from halfway across the country so thank you for being here today absolutely my pleasure so let's uh, just we're gonna kind of kind of walk through your career and some of the cool things you're doing and what that's looked like Um, but I want to start with kind of your path to MSU Denver Uh, how'd you land here what was it about Metro that was like this is where I'm going. This is where I'm going to kind of learn a little bit more about my art craft. (laughs) Well, okay. So when I was wrapping up high school, I was really, you know, getting the question of like, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? And I was like, man, I do not know. I really don't know. Like, why do I have to know right now what I want to do for the rest of my life? Uh, And so my requirements for college were a little weird. (laughs) I knew that I wanted to be able to play music because I played in the band. And that was really important to me for community aspects, but also for creative aspects. But I knew for sure I didn't want to major in music. So what brought me to Metro was actually the fact that I could play in the symphony orchestra and not be a music major. And it was so close to home that I didn't have to do the whole dorm thing. Uh, I was raised by a single mom, so I had to pay for college myself. Uh, So that's how I ended up at Metro. And it really couldn't have been more of a perfect place for me. That's awesome. What instrument in the symphony? Percussion. Okay. Like the special fancy ones with mallets or just straight up drums? Oh, I got to play the big bass drum and the gong and triangle and those sorts of things. <laughs> oh, that's very fun. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to watch when, if I ever do attend an orchestra or symphony performance is I love to watch the percussionists just standing in the back because you can see them counting, counting, and then all of a sudden something's <laughs> going to come and you know that it's changing the whole uh, course of, you know, kind of that movement. So that's, a, that's an awesome experience. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And the facilities at Metro are just unbelievable. Thank you for that. Uh, And then so you did eventually land on studying art. And so what's mostly in the sculpture space, but I imagine through that uh, degree work, you'd have to study all types of art. 
I did. So I actually, my first art class was Introduction to Photography, and it was an all-day Friday class. And I got to tell you, when I stepped foot in that dark room, it was a life-changing experience. I didn't go on to do photography, but it was learning the fundamentals of composition and lighting and all of the the fundamentals of art that really got me going. And I I absolutely fell in love with the art department. Uh, And then eventually I got to sculpture and I was like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. That's great. What is your preferred medium when we talk about sculpture? Are you kind of open to anything? I'm pretty open to anything. Yeah, I love clay, uh, ceramics, because it's so accessible. And I feel like there's something really healing about just getting your hands in the clay. It's very grounding. And also that's the beginning for uh, many other pieces. Like the Joy Cat piece started as a clay sculpture in the very beginning. Did it? Really? Mm -hmm. Okay, so talk us through this Joy Cat piece. Uh, This is one of your first large-scale, real large-scale piece, right? Yes. And then you light it on fire. Yes, we did. (laughs) Yeah, so this is for 2019, and Joy Cat was a 21-foot wooden sculpture of a cat playing with a ball of yarn. And I I wanted to bring this piece into the world to create joy. And... One of the aspects of joy, if you're looking at it through an Ayurvedic perspective or through Buddhist perspective, is letting go. Mm. We Ultimately, if we cling to the things that bring us joy, they won't bring us joy after a time. And so that was something that I wanted to bring to everybody through the joy cat. It's like, here's a sculpture with a cat playing with a ball of yarn. It's in this ecstatic posture and it's interactive. You could press a button and it would cause the cat to meow, or you could press another one and it would change the color of the lights. Um, it also turned into a little kitty memorial, which was really special and healing for a lot of people. Hmm. It was just a really cool experience. And for me, as not only an artist, but also as a leader, it was an exceptional experience that I created for myself to take my leadership to the next level. That's, that's incredible. So at that moment, were you at Burning Man when it was lit up? I got to light it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Was it a mixture of emotions? Because obviously what you just talked about was so beautiful, this idea. And, and I, it really sticks with me. And I think it's going to stick with me for a long time that we can't cling on to those things and expect the joy to be um, perpetual, right? So, so was it a mixture of emotions in that moment where you're like, man, I put so much work and effort into this thing. It's, I'm sad to see it go. But at the same time, I know that I'm doing exactly what I meant to do with that space. What, I just, I couldn't imagine lighting something on fire <laughs> that I'd worked so hard on, but I understand why you did it. Did you find yourself with a, with kind of conflicting emotions or was it really just a joyous experience for you to do that as well? It was just a joyous experience for me. Honestly, there were some leadership difficulties leading up to the burn itself. We had some last minute changes within our um, burn uh, team. It requires a whole team of people. We work with the fire art safety team. Um, they're very serious because there have been injuries at Burning Man and we don't want them to happen again. Um, so there was a lot of difficulty leading up to that point. But once we got the team in place and once we were out there and everything just fell right into place so perfectly, I was just beside myself with not only happiness, but also relief sure. that we saw this project from from the original clay sculpture to this giant cat to a pile of you know smoldering embers. 
it was it was pure joy. That's that's incredible. What a what a truly immersive experience, right? Especially for you as the artist, let alone the people that I got to participate in any part of that performance. So that's incredible. It really was. So I'd love to talk about how you got there because that's 2019, but you left in 2005 and you've done an incredible amount of things uh, and a lot of work (laughs) along the way. Uh, You started in uh, kind of sculpture and installation, then some feature films here in Denver, then um, anything that you could get your hands on in LA once you made that move, it sounds like. Pretty much. Uh, Did some animated shows for preschoolers and then eventually landing with The Simpsons, who you were with for a very long time and now, very recently, now with Jim Henson Company. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'd love to just hear a little bit about that progression. Did it feel natural? Was it, is it what most people in the industry kind of go through or did you have some weird twists and turns along the way? There were definitely twists and turns, but ultimately I think it's the same mentality that I applied at Metro, which was take advantage of the resources that you have on hand. You know, make the most out of everything that you've got. It's that mentality that really led me to success in my career. And I'm still applying it to this day. Yeah, definitely some twists and turns. I ended up in animation uh, during the last writer's strike, actually. And here we are again in another writer's strike, right. um, which I support the writers 100%. But it's like through these changes come opportunities. And I think it's that metro mentality of like being ready to seize the opportunity that's available at the moment that's really just helped propel my career along. So when you got that opportunity in animation, were you much of a, and and I know you don't do the drawings in that role, but were you much of a sketch artist or anything in that space? Or was it a whole new set of skills that you needed to learn or ways to think about things? Or what did it seem like a pretty natural progression? It was similar in some ways. I mean, I've always used Photoshop uh, I, I actually learned to use Photoshop while I was at Metro, and that tool has really been extremely valuable throughout my career. So while I've never been a 2D artist necessarily, I do have the fundamentals um, thanks to my education. I took life drawing and figure drawing, and you know that's what you got to do if you're an art major. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so all of that was really helpful. But for animation, what drew me to it were the people. Um, and just the sheer amount of creative jobs that it, that it really takes to make an animated show. Um, so how yeah. long, just cause I'm curious if you've got a 30 minute episode or 23 minutes, whatever they end up being, how, how long does that take to make? It takes about a calendar year typically. Jeez. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And if you're doing 20, like on the Simpsons, we did 22 in a season, although Production season is different from airing season. It's different from what you see on your TV. Um, But we did 22 episodes a season, and it took us a little over a calendar year to complete everything. My goodness. That just is mind-boggling to me because you think about um, just on the very facial level of like, oh, cartoons are for kids and acting is for adults, right? And so you think just in that rational kind of logistic flow, like, oh, that should be an easier thing to do than this. And then when you hear these stories, you're like, oh, gosh, no, the amount of work and time and effort and probably the amount of people that are going into even a singular frame of making whatever is happening uh, ends up being a lot, it seems like a lot more work and not to sell anything short on the acting side. There's a lot of work and things that go into that and a lot of people in that space. But uh, it's just, it's a really incredible way of thinking about creating stories 
and putting them in front of people and realizing how much has to go into that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, What were some of your most exciting experiences working, especially in a show that has had such a tenured run? I mean, I I was joking with my mom last night as I told her I get a chance to speak with you today. And she said, oh, you remember when you were Bart Simpson for Halloween? (laughs) And I was like, I do remember that. Um, and I, I was, she's like, oh, I'll try and find a picture. I was like, nope, you don't need to find a picture of that. I think we gelatined my hair up, painted my face, uh, (laughs) yellow, had big eyeballs. And then I think I wore my Cowabunga dude shirt, you know? Um, but that had to have been 89, 90, you know? I mean, so this show has been on the air for upwards of 30 years, right? And you've been a big part of that space. Uh, what are some of those memorable moments that maybe are outside of the, the production and the actual animation space that made it a, a fulfilling job for you? Well, in my first years, maybe my first seven or eight years on The Simpsons, I was overseeing the storyboard and animatic departments. And so I got to go to the Fox lot about every other week for an animated, uh, for the animatic screening, which is, that's a a phase of production where it's still black and white. Um, There's still drawings. It's not final animation, but the writers get a chance to look at it at that point and then make rewrites. Mm -hmm. And so that was really wonderful for me because I was immersed not only in the storyboard phase of it, where I got to sit in these creative meetings and hear the experts, you know, hash out the best way to tell this story in the funniest way, you know, the most funny possible way to tell the story. But then I got to go see it with the writers themselves and hear their laughs or when they didn't laugh (laughs) and kind of figure out, okay, well, what's, what's going to change. And I got an insight into their process as well. So those skills that I learned are, are invaluable. I, I take them with me to this day. When you didn't hear the laughs, what was mostly what changed? Was it dialogue or was it the way that the scene was being presented? No, both. (laughs) Both, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it was the line itself. Other times it was the, you know, the staging behind it, or it could have just been the read. Sure. There were, there were many reasons, but yeah, The Simpsons really taught me the amount of work that it takes to get a laugh. (laughs) Right. Uh, That's, that is perfect. (laughs) Uh, That's incredible. So now uh, you've left The Simpsons, you're now with the Jim Henson Company and in a co-producer role. So is that a big jump for you? And what are you kind of overseeing now in this role? And what is exciting you about uh, your time now and the future at Jim Henson? Oh, it was a great jump for me. Uh, I I switched over to the Jim Henson Company in, when was that? 2021. Yeah. So in the middle of the pandemic, which is a little weird, um, but I was so lucky and grateful. I got to work with the wonderful Sydney Clifton on Harriet the Spy, which is on Apple Plus, which, you know, most people haven't heard of it, but it's really a great show. I definitely encourage it. It was one of my favorite books as a kid. So when I saw that that was on your list, I was like, I got to watch that. I have Apple Plus. So it's on my list for the summer. It's (laughs) really fun. The music is great. The performances are great. We got Beanie Feldstein as Harriet Mm -hmm. and we have the wonderful Jane Lynch as Old Golly. I mean, it's just a star-studded cast and the show looks amazing. Mm -hmm. So the biggest change was that when I went to the Jim Henson Company, Instead of working just with the animation, I was actually working with what we call the client. Mm -hmm. Um, So I got to oversee 
ADR recording sessions and the post process, you know, mix color, wow. all of that. And I got to work with the animation studio, Titmouse New York. Mm-hmm. They were absolutely lovely. But I found myself in a position where I was now kind of shepherding the whole beast instead of just the animation part of it. Yeah. And that really opened up my world. And I was like, oh, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. That's that's awesome. And obviously so much of that is new and I would assume kind of intimidating or scary because there's things you don't know. Um, did you really, did you benefit from having mentors or just collaboration along the way and uh, people that would help you learn the things that you hadn't experienced before? Of course. I think we all need a little help from a friend. <laughs> um, so yes, I, I do my, again, my boss, Sydney Clifton was such a, an amazing mentor yeah. throughout the process. So it was interesting enough because I actually had a background in live action before, and I have friends that are you know, amazing sound editors and mixers and things like that. So I had spent time on a mixing stage well before I got to that point. So I was pretty comfortable with that. And then my time on the preschool show, I was in the recording booth helping with that kind of thing. So I felt comfortable in there too. Um, So it was actually, it really kind of all came together. And I realized I had learned more than I thought that I had learned along the way, uh, which was really a relief. But there was a, a, a big uh, learning curve on my part, and that was, that was in running the ADR sessions. Those are some pretty high-pressure situations, and you're working with like uber talent. You know, time is money. I realized like, oh, I need to be better at speaking up quickly and doing it in a way that's kind of funny you know, because we got to keep the energy up in the room. Yeah. Um, So it really, I was like, oof, I need to work on my impromptu speaking skills. So that's what brought me to Toastmasters, actually. (laughs) And that's why I joined. (laughs) I was going to ask how you got there, but that makes sense. I mean, especially, I think, and obviously in an animation role for however long you've done that, you're still dealing with people because people are behind all of this. But now you're in a space where, yeah, there's some, you're in control of some more live actors and other people that you need to have some communication with on a quick basis. And so that that's perfect that that's what brought you to Toastmaster. So talk to us a little bit about that. That'd be oh, great. yeah. It's been so helpful for me. And, you know, again, going back to that Metro scrappy mentality of just like, I'm going to make the most of what I've got. Um, Toastmasters is an incredible resource for both public speaking and leadership. Yeah. So I jumped in because I'm like, I need to work on my impromptu speaking skills. And part of our meeting every week, we have a little section which we call story topics. And that's a chance to practice impromptu speaking skills. And so my first meeting, I was like, oh, yeah, this is the place I'm supposed to be. Um, this Then I can practice it week after week after week with strangers, you know, and practice my storytelling and and all of that. But I could also practice my leadership Most recently, I've been using it for networking because I'm a bit of an introvert and networking is kind of hard for me. Small talk is really tough for me. I get it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but it's absolutely essential. Um, So there was a part of a pathway, which the pathway is like um, 
basically like a workbook essentially. Um, and there was one project in that on networking. And so I, I did the little thing and I like wrote out my elevator pitch and I wrote out my goals right. and I wrote out, you know, what I bring to the table. And then I went to the Producers Guild holiday mixer last year and put all of that to use. <laughs> and I felt so confident going into that event, whereas normally I I would be terrified. <laughs> but I, I had the tools, I felt confident, I put them to use, and it was a success. And I actually, I gave a speech about it the following week. Wow. And I invited one of the people that I met, and he came and he absolutely loved it. And so it was a real, it was a smashing success. That's very cool. Um, I think about that. Like, I, I probably border right on that middle of like introvert and extrovert. Uh-huh. Um, I'm fine in some of those settings. But then there's times where like, if I especially if I know that something's coming up, I will talk myself into like, I don't want to go. It'll just be easier if I don't, you know, like, because like, I don't want to talk to people, even though I talk to people for a living. And so then it's almost like, I just want to shut it down sometimes, yeah. you know, and just be in that space. Plus I realize when I do things that are very extroverted, I have to decompress for a very long time after I just need to sit down. I need to read a book. I need to, you know, turn on the TV, not pay attention and just kind of have those moments. And so to be able to have a space where you're with like-minded people that say, here's how we can overcome some of that, or here's how we can manage it kind of in chunks. And if we have an elevator speech, if we have our goals, if we have the things we want to accomplish, it gives us something to focus on in that space. And just what, what an incredible skill set. And I love that you're in that space and, and in the leadership role with that organization, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So I've served as club president this past year and stepping down in July, I'm still going to be on the leadership team as treasurer, um, which is a cool transition actually into the next phase of my career as well. So <laughs> Fair, right? Join the alumni networking group and participate in quarterly networking meetups to expand your professional network and connect with other Roadrunner alumni. Networking meetups are free to attend and are held in February, May, August, and November at Spire Financial in downtown Denver. This episode is brought to you by Hummingbirds. Just learn the lyrics already. Well, I love that you've talked a lot about and done a great job of just naturally connecting a lot of the stuff that you're doing now with experiences and skills and and growth that you had here on campus. Uh, what what else would you say? What are some of those other maybe intangible skills or things that you experienced as a student here that have been really essential to your um, your booming success that you've had? Oh, that's such a great question. Uh, again, I just keep going back to that scrappy nature that so many Metro students have. You know, it's it's really, and I was telling Corey about this years ago, but it's such a special school because you're surrounded by people who are really working hard. They're, nobody's phoning it in at Metro, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Everybody's working their butts off. And I think that being surrounded by like-minded people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and get the job done however they can, I think that that's incredibly valuable. And I've taken that same mentality with me throughout my whole career. And in fact, I have to confess something, which is that the project that I was co-producing on took a hiatus, basically. Mm-hmm. So I've been unemployed since the end of December, actually. Wow. Yeah. So I've, and now we're in this writer's strike and mm-hmm. it's a tough time in the industry. Yeah. But I am using those same tools to my benefit. And I, my calendar is full. I, my motto is, if I can see a step forward, take it. 
And I am just going to use this time to level up in my career however I can. Um, And right now for me, what that looks like is I want to be a creative producer. So I've partnered with writers and um, we're pitching when when we can. Of course, there's a strike going on, mm-hmm. but we're pitching uh, shows and movies and things. So I'm really trying to take charge of my career in the same way that I took charge of my my academics at Metro. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it is a, it's a very tough time. I still have a lot of friends that are in the industry. I, I mentioned earlier, I think before we were recording that I, I used to live out there, never was in it myself um, in the industry, but a lot of friends and uh, former classmates that are in that space. And it is a, it's a very tough time and uncertainty. And hopefully there'll be some resolution in the next coming months and hopefully it'll benefit everybody in this space. Yeah. But what I love about having kind of that artistic and creative mentality that is also, to your point, kind of coupled with this like grittiness and we're just going to make it happen is it's going to open a lot of new opportunities that if we get bogged down with just what we're doing every day, maybe we don't have time for, or we don't have that opportunity uh, to explore. And so I love to hear that, um, that, that grittiness and that kind of go get it attitude is still a part of your day to day. And for all we know, this little hiatus that you're in now might actually turn into something really incredible in terms of the creative products you're going to be able to make mm-hmm. some of those networking opportunities and who knows what's going to be next. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm very much looking forward and optimistic for, for what we're going to hear from you next. Ah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. You know, me too. I'm, I'm staying positive and, and one of the ways that I'm doing that is by staying busy and, and like I said, continuing to take steps forward whenever I can see them. And taking risks, being afraid every day. I'm like, oh, do something that I'm scared of every single day. Reach out to that person that I'm like, oh, they don't want to hear. Or, you know, not that they don't want to hear from me, but like, sure, you know, the, the little voice inside. Who am I to reach out to that person? You know, <laughs> and like push through that and just do it. <laughs> well, it's very, you're very, you're so true. I mean, it's, I think you actually brought it up when you were talking about the Toastmasters, this idea of, defining what am I bringing to the table, mm-hmm. right? And being really self-confident in that space. And sometimes that's very hard to do. Uh, and and it may change depending on the environment that we're walking in. But but having, a, having that kind of gut feeling of like, this is who I am. This is what I bring to the table. This is why I'm a value add or an asset um, makes it a little bit easier to have those conversations. But um, but there's still just so much doubt. And so getting ourselves out of our comfort zone and getting ourselves out of those spaces where we can be afraid every day and be okay being afraid. Mm-hmm. I think that's the part where it's like, gosh, if we could master that, that would be so, that would make so many th- more things uh, accessible mm-hmm. to us, mm-hmm. right? I, I, you know, I, I wonder if the students at Metro are doing that every single day, you know, showing up, taking classes and learning things and stepping out into this world that's very uncertain, you know, we're just doing it every single day, doing the thing. (laughs) And and feeling more confident. So I I can tell you, I teach a course here at MSU Denver as well. I teach a legal liabilities course in our human performance and sport. And it's a mandatory course that all the exercise science and all of the sport management students have to take. And the very first day, I'll always say, okay, how many of you guys care about the law? And like two people's hands go up. (laughs) I'm like, how many of you are going to be attorneys? And no one's hands go up. And I go, great. How many of you are in this class? Cause you have to take it to graduate. And, you know, the whole class's hands go up. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. And I realized uh, after the first couple semesters of teaching this, like I need to make this information that is very relevant and very important for them because they're going to go off 
they're going to be somehow in the exercise science space, whether they're going into med school afterwards or PT school, or they're going to be trainers, or they're going to be sport managers. You have to understand the legal side of it, the business side, because it will come and bite you in the butt if you don't. But you don't care about it. So how can we make this information accessible? You at least don't care about it as a 22 to, you know, whatever age you might be in at that moment. Yeah. And what I've realized is if I can make it accessible, it also opens up kind of this pocket of vulnerability for students to be able to say, hey, I'm actually very afraid to take this class because I don't understand the law. I don't understand the systems. I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah. So however you can help me in this space would be very helpful. And I remember the very first time a student said that to me, I was like, holy smokes, this kid is going to go very far because if at a young age you can sit there and say, I don't understand this, I don't get it, and it's actually very intimidating for me to tell my professor that, but I'm going to tell you that because I know it's going to be a step in the right direction for me to get the information that I need to succeed better. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm going to be willing to put myself out there to say that to a professor, like, I don't understand this and I'm going to need your help. And I just remember thinking, gosh, if we could could harness that energy... (laughs) And look at everything we do on a daily to say, hey, I don't know how to do this. I'm afraid, but I'm going to do it anyway. But I'm going to ask for help along the way. We would be so much more inclined to succeed and to be more collaborative and to be more helpful in that space. And it was just one of those moments that was really telling for me. And so when I hear you talk about like trying to be afraid every day, I was like, "Ah, gosh, I wish I could have learned that lesson before I had to be taught it by a 20-year-old student in the classroom, right? Yeah, that's such a great example of, of something that I wanted to bring up actually with you also, which Please. is asking for help and how important that's been for me in my career. Mm-hmm. And oh, it's so hard to ask for help. But honestly, I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't. I remember when I was finishing up my degree at Metro and I was having lunch with a friend and we were talking about like, okay, well, what are you going to do now? And I was like, man, you know, what I really want to do is work in film. And I really don't know how to do that. And he was like, well, my buddies actually are making a really low budget horror film and they could probably use an extra set of hands if you want to go help them out. And so I did. And that was the beginning of everything. Again, using the resources that you have on hand, the people that you already know, and just being vulnerable and asking for help, that's going to get you where you want to go. I couldn't agree more. I think the other part that I love about that story, because I think on the other side, sometimes I have the students that are, I say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they'll tell me, oh, you know, I want to be the marketing director for Nike. And I'm like, great. So how are you going to get there? And it's like, oh, well, I'm just going to go do that. And it's like, no, you got to go along the way. There's going to be steps along the way. Uh, and what I love about your story is like, listen, I'm going to go do whatever. You you might have been PAing, you might have been emptying trash cans, who knows what you were doing on that site, but you were there and if you have your eyes open and you're observing what's happening, you're going to pick up a lot of skills along the way that are going to benefit you in the next space. I mean, and I think you even said it a little bit when we were talking about the Simpsons where once you finally got to Jim Henson, you realized, "Oh no, I've actually done a lot of these things in these spaces. I just now get to do it all in one space." Mm-hmm. But if you'd had your blinders on for your your years and your career in that space and didn't pick up on what else was happening around you, then you wouldn't even know what help you needed to ask for. Yeah. Right. So there's, I I love to hear that, that not only are you willing to ask for the help and that that is such an important thing that we need to do, but also when you're in any environment, just be as intentional about observing whatever you can, because you're going to pick things up along the way that are going to be helpful. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
so I was reading and obviously doing a lot of research on you to, uh, before we started today. And there was a couple quotes in, you know, a variety of different interviews that you've done, but a few that stuck out to me that I just want to see if they still hold true for you today, um, because I think they're very impactful. One of the things that you said is that you're unwilling to sacrifice your daily happiness to remain comfortable. Yeah. And I love that. Uh, and I think it gets at this idea of we need to be afraid. We need to push ourselves out of our comfort zones. Um, you still live by that? Is that still something that you agree I with? I definitely do. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, one of my regrets in my career is that I think I stayed at The Simpsons for too long because it was comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I did push myself. That's why I did the art shows and the Joy Cat because I was pushing myself. Mm-hmm. But I was also a little bit comfortable and a little bit complacent. And looking back, I'm like, "Mm, I probably should have left a little bit earlier so I could work on my networking connections outside of The Simpsons. Uh, So, yeah, absolutely. I should have listened to myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just I'll put these all on sticky notes and send them to you. And then you can say, wow, who said that? And you can be like, I said that (laughs) years ago. One of the other things that you talked about in kind of your studying of art uh, is that it got you to think outside the box and see opportunities you otherwise wouldn't have missed. And I love that. I'm not inherently a, a tangible, physical. I cannot create any art in that way, but I do like to build things. I love music. And so when I think about art collectively as this big body of, you know, very subjective expression and storytelling in some way, shape or form, I do love that one of the greatest tangential benefits is that it makes you open your eyes and see things from different perspectives and in different ways. And so I love this. I I just love that you said this, that it made you think outside of the box and and look at other opportunities. And so now as you're, you've obviously transitioned some professional opportunities, maybe what I'm most curious about is what is that connection for you from this idea of how you approach art to then being so quick to transition, looking at even very everyday stuff to say, I can look at this in a different Mm -hmm. way. How did you make that connection? Well, if we go to my, my little motto for myself this year, which is if I can see a step forward, take it. When we think about creativity and pushing ourselves as creative people, I mean, human beings are creative beings by nature. We, whether that comes out in cooking or art or music, however, we just create every day. That's what we do. And when we practice those skills of creativity, then we can see more steps. You know, it's like um, it opens up that door. So now I can think, oh, well, I could take this step or I could take this step or I could take this step, but I can see more steps if I'm in that creative space. And I think that's just such a valuable school, school <laughs> skill that I learned from Metro in being in an art class, you know, where I had an idea for a sculpture. Okay, well, I mean, I hate to break it to you, but most people, especially when they're starting out in their uh, as an artist, their ideas in the beginning are very unoriginal. Sure. <laughs> so then it's like pushing. I got to push myself. Okay, well, that's the way everybody else has done it, but how can I get my idea across in a different way? How, what are some other ways? How do, how do I tackle this problem in other ways? Like there's the most obvious solution, but then what are the less obvious solutions? Well, I think it's so much of that is the critical thinking, too, that comes into that, right, where you're not just going down 
the one path that maybe speaks to a majority of people or is, to your point, the solution that seems most readily available. If we can take a step back and say, no, if I look at these other steps, what are the other avenues that can still let me do exactly what I want to accomplish at the end? But it's going to be more of a zigzaggy path. It's going to be more of a different way to get there. And in doing so, might actually reach more people or tell the story in a different way or through a different lens that has more impact. Mm-hmm. And I, I love to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's incredible. And you hear, I mean, I, I'm, I read leadership news all the time yeah. and I see that in all industries, creativity is valued. It doesn't really matter if you're in the arts or in engineering, mm-hmm. creativity is really important. Uh, I think it's a skill that we need to press ourselves um, to develop every single day. And there are so many amazing tools these days for doing that. Uh, so yeah, it's really an exciting time, I think. And I think it goes back to your idea of comfort too. I think the more comfortable we are, the less inclined we are to be more creative because that shakes up our our little world. And so I'd almost, I, I'm almost taking this conversation a takeaway for me is that when I find myself being uh, comfortable in a situation, I need to shake things up and be and see how I can bring creativity in to figure out will that rock the boat enough to allow me to continue to grow, or is it just that we need a full course change or shift change? But I I do really appreciate that because I think it's a great way to think about kind of my greatest fear of being stagnant. I always say like that's my greatest fear. I just don't want to be stuck in a place and mm-hmm. just be that this is what it is. I want there to still be a surprise in it for me, a surprise in it for the people around me. What's it going to look like? And I and I have this real need for utility, like to be useful and to be helpful in that space. Yeah. When we focus when I focus on words like that, I don't focus on words like creativity or <laughs> innovation or yeah. ingenuity or how could I do how could I do accomplish similar things but in a different way that could still keep that excitement and adventure rolling. So thank you for that. You didn't even know that you were here to provide life lessons for me, but in fact you did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh goodness. (laughs) Well, I'm honored. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, I want to be cognizant of time with you, but are there other things you wanted to chat about today? Oh goodness. I loved your questions that you sent ahead of time. Yes. Yeah. I want to talk about my favorite MSU Denver memory. Yes. Let's do our rapid fires. It's such a great school. The facilities are absolutely amazing at Metro. I would just encourage all students to take advantage of all the amazing opportunities that there are available. And there were a few opportunities that were made available while I was there. One of them was through the Center for the Visual Arts. And they brought in this artist, Sandy Skokland, who was an installation artist. And that's what I loved doing too. We take a room and you make it your art piece. And she created a piece with the students. We had like 30 students and her and she led us to, we were like painting loaves of bread with like this hot pink paint and we were (laughs) wrapping red objects like a toothbrush and whatever in saran wrap and this sorts of thing. And it was so wonderful to just be able to be a part of an artist's process and be involved like that. That was really that's that was a very very memorable experience with Metro. It's very cool. I'm just curious. So when when you were a part of her installation, does she give you the whole vision on the front end to say here's what I'm accomplishing or was it just very much task oriented like paint this loaf, you know, pink and then it wasn't till it was done that you got to really experience or understand what her vision was? Kind of both. We had an idea because a lot of work had already been done by the time we got there. There were pieces that were already installed. And in the two spaces that we were working on, 
at least the walls were all taken care of and some of the major pieces were in place already. So we kind of had an idea where it was going. But at the same time, it was very much like, here's a loaf of bread, paint it pink. Sure. You know, it's like, okay. But, but good, li- good <laughs> you know, life lessons rapping. there. Sometimes you just have to do something and trust that it's going to come out to, to the vision that you're expecting. But uh, I, I then would imagine as a student, once you got to then experience the whole installation, going like having that aha moment of being like, oh, mm-hmm. I see why that mattered. And I understand this and I'm getting what she was trying to convey. That's a very cool experience, though, especially as an undergraduate student to be a part of that. It really was. It really was. That's great. Did you get to do a lot of stuff with the CVA in your time here? No, not a lot. The CVA had just moved, I think, while I was a student there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it was very exciting. And now I get the little postcards and things. They do so many cool things. (laughs) They do. There's uh, you can't see it on my screen, but I have this great uh, painting on my wall that is um, the state of Colorado flag, and then with some MSU Denver logo and our Roadrunner head. Um, so every time someone comes in, they're like, how do you have that on the wall? I go, it was a senior, uh, a student in the art department, and they do their senior thesis at the CVA. I said, my predecessor bought it, and it's a big statement piece, but it represents that we are the heart of Colorado. We are the heart of Denver. So much of what we talk about as a state that we want to accomplish is happening in the walls of our classrooms, and we are serving Colorado. Our students stay here in Colorado. Uh, and so I love that it it tells me all of that without having to say any of that. Um, but I also love that a student made it. That's one of my most favorite things. And I think I often think back to it because it I've been here 10 years. And so it was before my time. But that some student got an opportunity to display their art at a curated space at the CVA. And someone had the opportunity to purchase that. And what a cool feeling that had to have felt uh, as a senior in college going, OK, I can do this. Yeah, that's that's really such a confidence boost. Right. And a real it's a win-win situation. I would recommend to all students and, and faculty that if you see a piece of art that you like by a student, buy it. Support them. 100%. You're not going to yep. regret it. Put it on your wall. Yep. You know, it has a story for, for all time. Yep. I'm with you. Well, thank you for your MSU Denver memory. That's great. The other question, uh, second question was, what does it mean to you to be a roadrunner? Uh, it means being resourceful. And resilient. I mean, you talked about the grittiness. I mean, all of those things are there, but I I couldn't agree with you more having been around this campus as a student, as a faculty member, as a staff member, uh, the resiliency is at the top of the game. So you're spot on there. It's not a test, but I made it sound like a test there. I was like, you're right. (laughs) You can tell I just graded all my finals where I'm like, "Mm, yes, you got it. (laughs) Uh, And then this is my favorite question to ask our alums and our guests. Uh, If you could put a billboard on campus with a piece of advice for all students to see, what would it say? Uh, it would be my motto for this year. If you can see a step forward, take it. <laughs> I'm with you. And it goes right hand in hand with that resiliency because worst case scenario, you take that step and you slip and fall. Guess what? Get right back up, take another step, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, I love it. Well, I can't uh, tell you how excited I was to speak with you today. I just think you're doing incredible work and I love how for as long as I've been here, you've constantly been connected with the institution, making sure that we can tell your story, that that we can, uh, I know you've spoken with students when you come back uh, into Denver. And so just an incredible representation, I think, of our Roadrunner community. You haven't stopped giving back. You're always here, always taking a look at how your story can impact people, how you can network and navigate and help students uh, that are currently looking at opportunities in your space. And so I just can't thank you enough for continuing to be such an 
advocate for MSU Denver and for our students. Uh, and it's super exciting to watch you continue to succeed and can't wait to continue to tell these stories of you, especially in the coming 5, 10, 20 years. Looking forward that this podcast is still going and that we're still having now a follow-up conversation to say, what have you done in the last 20 years? Because I, uh, I'm very optimistic for you and I think you got a lot of things cooking and going in the right direction. Oh, well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And it's really, it's an honor to give back to the community. Metro is such a special school. I really, I can't emphasize that enough. Like it really set me up for success in my life. And I'm so grateful. So I will continue to give back uh, for all time. Perfect. I'm going to hold you to that. We have that in recorded word now. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Well, awesome. Well, I hope you enjoy the rest of your gloomy day. Uh, out in Burbank. Uh, Say hello to the Pacific Ocean for me. I miss it dearly, but really excited uh, that we got the chance to to hang out today. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much, Jamie. Great interview. Yep. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. It's easy to have an interview with you because there's so many fun things to talk about. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bird Talk, special accommodation provided by University Advancement. Thank you to Ruby Matheny, Brandy Rideout, Heather Holzbauer-Schweitzer, and Andy Schlichting. Production provided by David Sharman, and I'm your host, Jamie Hurst. Keep running, roadies.